welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, ETSU's Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. It is the first pod of 2023, which I think the first time I did this podcast was in 2017. Missed the anniversary back in November. So, uh, 17, 18... 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. The 7th calendar year this podcast has been in your ears. Um, Wow. Wow. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, The last podcast you may have listened to was the end of the year drug review, where I I somewhat arbitrarily and capriciously decide whether or not a drug uh, shall be kept, returned, uh, or re-gifted. Uh, that pod was recorded before the last approval of 2022, which is uh, Map, which was approved uh, after I recorded that podcast towards the end of December. Uh, brand name here is Lunsumio. Lunsumio? Sounds like a Genesis song. Um, this is approved for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. We're going to talk more about the, the study that got disapproved. It was an accelerated approval, yes, response rate, about 100 patients, you already know the story, right? Um, so this is a, a T-cell engager. We have a couple of these that are that are already approved, right? So the first one we had was, was blenitumab, which is a CD3, CD19 T-cell engager. That is approved for ALL. Um, there's tabenufusp, which is a T-cell engager uh, with the fusion protein for... Uh, some patients with melanoma. We've got teclistimab, recently approved uh, last calendar year. It's a CD3 BCMA engager, so targeting mature B cells, approved for myeloma. Uh, and then now mosinotuzumab, which is a CD3 CD20 T cell engager. CD20, huge active target, non Hodgkin's lymphomas, uh, some B cell ALLs that express CD20. Uh, of course, rituximab really was of one of the, the few true game changers uh, in oncology in the last uh, half century. So this is the first T-cell engager we have that is targeting CD20, um, Uh The approval, again, relapse refractory follicular lymphoma or indolent kind of prototype, prototype of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, after two lines of treatment, including an alkaline agent and a CD20 agent. Um, some, interest, some interesting kind of differences between these, right? So they're all T-cell engagers. Um, Blenitumab is small. It's got a molecular weight of 54 kilodaltons. It's given via continuous infusion. So probably because of that smaller um, molecular weight, it has a short half-life around two hours. Some of that small half-life may have that you're giving it to ALL. It's pretty advanced, and those people are burning through the drug because it's killing ALL cells. Teclistimab has the exact same molecular weight, uh, approximately the same molecular weight, as mosinotuzumab, 146 kilodaltons. Uh, half-life of teclistimab is not reported, but it's dosed weekly. Uh, mosinotuzumab eventually is going to be dosed every three weeks, kind of like the traditional cytotoxic chemo cycle. Um, we'll get to that in, in a little bit here. So first thing, uh, when you look at kind of the, the executive summary here at the top of the PI, there's a box warning for cytokine release syndrome. Maybe not surprising for a T-cell engager. Um, cytokine release syndrome occurred in 39% uh, only grade two, grade three in two percent, and grade four in in zero point five percent. Now, the median time to cytokine release syndrome for cycle one after cycle one day one was five hours. Keep that in mind because the dosing here is a little bit different. 
Um, so there is a ramp up dose. So cycle one, day one is one milligram. Cycle one, day eight, so a week later is two milligrams. Uh, cycle one, day 15 is 60 milligrams. Cycle two, day one, 60 milligrams. And then cycle three onward is 30 milligrams, right? So you slowly ramp up uh, to try and probably debulk is probably what you're doing with the one milligram dose, then a two milligram dose, then a 60 milligram dose. Um, so in the course of three consecutive weeks, you're getting 63 milligrams. Uh, and, then, uh, and then a week later, you get another 60 milligrams. So then you're really loaded with this drug. And then 30 milligrams every three weeks is kind of the maintenance dose after you, you ramp them up and load them to that. Um, the reason I, I mentioned the cytokine release syndrome first, this is going to be a really expensive drug. Um, it's given uh, as a one-time dose. It's not a continuous infusion. I think a lot of people are going to try to give this in clinic. That's going to be really cumbersome and burdensome for folks. Like if we give this here in a community practice, we're not used to seeing cytokine release syndrome. It's a drug that I think is going to be used quite a bit if it follows the blenitumumab model, where blenitumumab, when it first came out ooh, probably eight years ago, was relapsed refractory ALL all the way down the line of therapy, right? And then it got moved up and showed survival benefit in people with ALL that had a measurable residual disease. And now from the latest ASH, we know it's going to be used a lot of people without measurable residual disease. So it went from last line and moving up, moving up. If that were to happen with mosinotuzumab, does it get used on top of our chop, uh, in place of rituximab in the art chop, immediately after our chop, if this starts to become really, really commonly used uh, and really effective, then a lot of folks like myself are going to need to get much more experience with cytokine release syndrome. And ICANS, uh, immune effector cell associated neurotoxicity syndrome, occurred in 39%, basically the same number who had cytokine release syndrome. Uh, infection, 17%. Perfectly comfortable dealing with that. Um, prophylactic antibiotics in the study were per institutional guidelines. Um, so whether or not everyone needs to be on, uh, they develop quite a bit of lymphopenia. Do they all need to be on antiviral prophylaxis? Do they all need PJP prophylaxis? Kind of unanswered. 4% um, of patients had a tumor flare with this, which is something that is very surprising and unexpected to me. Um, not something you think of, uh, you know, this tumor flare, you, you hear about it maybe with some, you know, rituximab-containing regimens in leukemia. It, it's probably just inflammation at the side of the tumor. Um, but some, some of these patients had pleural effusions. I'm assuming they had uh, pulmonary disease. If somebody had, uh, you know, a perispinal lesion or something like that, you might worry about that drug. And the PI does say to monitor folks carefully for that depending on the side of the disease. So before you get this drug, you really have to think about where is the tumor here? Similar to what you might do if you were given a luprolide, an LHRH analog uh, agonist for patients with metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, so those are the kind of the main uh, toxicities. I will note there's a big difference in the dose between one milligram, two milligram, and 30 milligram. Unlike teclistamab, we have two vial sizes here. We have a one milligram vial and a 30 milligram vial. So it is gonna be a lot less wasteful to give those first two doses to ramp up. As you might guess, with cytokine release syndrome, as a 40%, a two in five people will have that. Uh, standard pre-medications for everyone for the first two cycles includes acetaminophen, dexamethasone, and a histamine receptor antagonist. If you sail through that, PI says you don't need anything for cycle three and beyond. If you have any cytokine release syndrome, you do the same pre-meds with cycles three onward as you do with the other ones. Somewhat interestingly, 
the, the, the approval is if you have a complete response, eight cycles is what you get and you're done. If not, you can go get 17 cycles. Um, the, this was, uh, I don't think this study has a fancy name, but it was published in Lancet Oncology uh, in 2022 in August by uh, Bud or Buddy, B-U-D-D-E, and colleagues. You can find that. Um, and this is a phase two study of relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. When I first read this, I was like, oh, I bet a lot of these folks are relapsed. It's like years after treatment. And that's why you see the really impressive responses that you see. So um, the overall response rate here, everything is 80%. That's, think about that. You take that in your oncology course. Complete response, 60%. The, um, the, what they, I don't know if this is actually the goal of the study, but they're comparing it loosely to copanlisib, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor. These are, these are not good drugs for folgamphoma. FDA actually changed <laughs> their, their guidance on how they're going to evaluate PI3 kinase inhibitors for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma based on the disappointing confirmatory studies in this class. So anyway, uh, copanlisib complete response rate 14% in the same setting. Um, after two or more lines of treatment. This has a complete response rate of 60%. So incredible activity here uh, with mosonituzumab, which is why I'm kind of asking myself and asking out loud, is this going to follow the blenitumab model and consistently over time move up in therapy? Uh, maybe not just for follicular lymphoma, but for more aggressive um, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas as well, like large, cell B, uh, large B cell lymphoma. Still, that remains to be uh, confirmed. So as I mentioned, my first thought was, oh, these are going to be these follicular lymphoma patients who got RCHOP eight years ago, they got BR, you know, three years ago, uh, you know, not the most aggressive. But no, in fact, 70% of patients were refractory to the previous therapy, 80% refractory to any CD20 therapy, and 53 were refractory um, to CD20 therapy and an alkylator. Uh, so, so a pretty difficult uh, to treat disease state, and you're still seeing complete response rates of... Uh, of you know 60 percent uh, and total of 90 patients in this study. There um, notable stuff here um, to, to skim here. There was one case of grade four viremia of Epstein-Barr virus, not something you see every day uh, in studies. Uh, the tumor flare, four percent is what the PI said. Three percent occurred in this study, based on the publication. Uh, so I think this is a, this is a drug that if I were we're doing my end of the year countdown, this would be a keep. I think it's it's an exciting drug. It's a drug that's going to be used. I, I would think it's going to be used quite a bit in community, um, if if uh, community folks can can get up to speed in, in caring for patients with cytokine release number. It doesn't have a REMS program, uh, like uh, like the CAR T products do, um, despite having you know, the the same toxicities, maybe not the extent of toxicity and severity, but still having the risk of cytokine release syndrome. And I can, so I probably need to find someone to come and speak to me, probably on mic, about really what to look for with cytokine release syndrome, ICANs, and how potentially to manage this as an outpatient. Okay, so that's most on the Tuesday map. The the next study, uh, or the the next thing I'm going to talk about is a study that was just published online ahead of print. I think today came in my email today. Anyway, tweet us out. Got a lot of action on Twitter in my my bubble there, uh, my online bubble. So this is. The Journal of Oncology Pharmacy Practice um, by Jacob Hobbs, who's at Sioux Falls, South Dakota. My dad wants to move to South Dakota for some reason. Um, he likes it flat. So this is efficacy of same-day 
versus next day administration of pegful grastim for the prevention of chemotherapy-induced peripheral uh, or febrile neutropenia in breast cancer patients receiving dose-dense AC. So this is specific to dose-dense AC, and the authors say this is the first time this is specifically this question, same day versus next day pegful grastim, which is a very uh, prominent, interesting, everyone is talking about it. It's the most listened to podcast, or one of the most listened to podcasts I've ever done. Uh, was my talk with Ali McBride about this subject. They say this is the first one that's looked just at dose-dense AC. I think that's true. I, I haven't had, you know, an hour to go back and confirm that, but I, I really do think that's true, and, and they've done their own review, and they've concluded that as well. So really interesting results. First, though, first, it's a retrospective cohort study, and kind of what I say about retrospective cohort studies is the most notable thing you can say afterwards is, huh, and I'm saying, huh, after this, okay? This is why we're talking about it. Um, so they're, they're looking at three sites, right? So one practice site after dose dense AC, everybody got same-day peg full grass in clinic, either Nulaster or biosimilar in clinic. And there are two other independent sites, and they're not all within the same healthcare system. So you have at least three different clinics, at least two different healthcare systems, so going to be different uh, documentation practices, going to be different lab monitoring practices, different physicians, different kind of local standards of care, right? So in one practice site, they get same day pegful grastim, the other two they get next day. And that could either be they come back in the next day for a biosimilar pegful grastim, or they get the, the new last onpro uh, that's delivered the same day. Um, and they're looking at, you know, basically the incidence of febrile neutropenia. Now they define febrile neutropenia as an ANC less than 1,000 uh, with a temperature above 100.4, okay? based on the chart review, okay? If you've ever done a retrospective chart review, you know chart reviews, sometimes stuff's not there, okay? Um, and typically we say, uh, a lot of us say, ANC less than 500, ANC 100.4 higher. That's what we call neutropenic fever. So it's a little bit more generous or liberal definition of neutropenic fever. However, they use pretty standard definitions also of grade three neutropenia and grade four neutropenia, which is ANC less than 1,000, ANC 500. Uh, they also have 360 patients. This is a pretty large sample size for a retrospective cohort study. 146 at the same day site and 214 at the next day sites. They don't give a ton of information in our baseline demographics. They have, they're almost all female, um, similar median age, similar BMI. Uh, actually, the same day pegful grastim seems to be healthier with, uh, you know, 99% of an ECOG zero. Um, almost 18% were ECOG-1 at the next day site. So the next day site looks a little sicker. Um, uh, similar staging, whether it's, you know, most of these folks are stage one, two, or three, as you might expect for getting dose-dense AC. Things that aren't documented here, any prior chemo, which would maybe sensitize you to increase your risk of febrile neutropenia, any concomitant radiation, unlikely for stage one, two, and three breast cancer. Um, but, the, you know, the results here are, are, are such that they, they'd certainly raise eyebrows. So the rate of febrile neutropenia in, in all cycles, 24.7% with same day compared to 11.7% next day. That's an absolute difference of 13% and it's statistically significant. Um, again, giving pegful grastim the same day as chemotherapy is in your system, uh, increase the risk of neutropenia. All right, this is Amgen knows this. That's why they're not changing their label. This is what I've said. I don't think in many cases it's clinically significant because maybe you get another seven hours of neutropenia, ANC, 
maybe another seven hours or so. It's just an arbitrary number of, you know, duration of time where your neutrophil count is below 500, okay? Maybe that's not clinically significant. In fact, as far as hospitalizations, 11%, sorry, 15% versus 11%, that was not statistically significant. Numerically favoring, though, increasing hospitalization for same-day site. Again, being hospitalized is not the same as needing to be hospitalized, okay? Um, grade three neutropenia on, well, let's look at febrile neutropenia with cycle one. Because after you get multiple cycles, you get beaten up. So I kind of, for this, like to look at cycle one. So febrile neutropenia rate cycle one, 11.6% same day, 2.8% next day, difference of 8.8% statistically significant. Pretty large differences. And these are absolute differences, not, not, not BS relative risk differences. Uh, acute care appointments added on for all cycles, 11.6% versus 2.8% statistically significant. So the folks getting peg full grasp on the same day needed to be seen more often. They required more health care utilization. So, you know, poor value care, perhaps. Uh, grade three neutropenia with cycle one, 16% versus 3%. Significant. Grade four neutropenia cycle one, 13% versus 6%. Different. You know, uh, you know, received antibiotics, 26.7% versus 12.7%. Also statistically significant. Um, would really, really love to, to know if the, what was the timing of the same day peg fulgrastum? Was it given, you know, like immediately after you finished the AC? Was there a couple hour break to try and let some of the drug get out of the system? Uh, don't know because that makes it hard to generalize this to any other practice who, who does same day and, and may have different standards on when they give their peg fulgrastum. They may try to give it as close to the end of leaving clinic uh, not sure because we're not a same day peg fulgrast in practice, but the um, again so big differences I think absolute differences that are still significant statistically significant albeit in a retrospective cohort design um, certainly eyebrow raising now those are numbers and certainly febrile neutropenia is nothing to laugh at and nothing to diminish um, but there's no difference in hospitalizations no difference in deaths. Um, so are we looking at numbers? Are we looking at, are we looking at a change in the, the care these patients receive? Again, tough to make any, I'd say impossible to make any definitive conclusions um, based on this. Um, however, it might make you a little leery of adopting this practice of same-day pegfulgrastim for dose-dense AC patients. Um, you, know, you know, the pretty high numbers of you know, for, for cycle one, 11.6% cycle one for dose dense AC, you wouldn't expect that for normal AC. Um, so that, and that's why I like to look at that, that first cycle, because you only have a, a you know, well, yeah, it, interesting. Would love to see more. It's, it seems, it would seem to be a study that would easy to be repeated at other sites. As a retrospective cohort study, it's very amenable to oncology residents, oncology pharmacy residents, or oncology fellows to do. Um, and it's been published. You have a roadmap. You have something you can cite about the methods. I think the methods could be tweaked to, to be a bit more descriptive of the individual patient risk factors for neutropenic fever. Um, and, and certainly a, a popular topic that would garner a lot of interest in publication from um, uh, respective publishers. So that's what I have for this week. Um, it is going to be a busy, busy teaching semester for me. I will do the best I can to keep uh, having something for you to listen to on your commutes and your workouts to help you 
uh, have some, some maybe some passive uh, learning on this very fast-changing field of oncology pharmacy. Um, thank you all for listening. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at PharmDNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.